Aalto University Podcast. Welcome to um, yet another episode of Cloud Reachers. Uh, my name is Mika J. Lehtonen, and I'm joined here today by uh, Estev Panetier. Welcome to the uh, show. Thanks, Mika. Thank you. Um, so before um, kind of going deeper into the details, so Estev, um, you are a design anthropologist and more recently one of the co-founders of greenelephant.org. And before recording this episode, um, I also came to know that you also have a connection to Alto ecosystem more broadly, for example, to design factory and executive education. Did I get that right? Yes, that's correct. It was it was actually quite a while ago that we were working, well, I was actually working with um, the design factory uh, and doing some guest um, lectures on design anthropology and also on, on Green, Blue, Red, the, the the method behind the Green Elephant at the moment. I think they were introduced to it. Actually, they were one of the first organizations in Finland to really start using this in in different courses. And, and Alto EE was more recently for the for the corporate trainings, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm super thrilled to have you here. And um, earlier, or oh, this this morning, I, I did some background research, um, not on you, but to kind of ground our discussion. <laughs> and I found this super interesting uh, Job ad- advertisements, because we are talking yeah. about communication today, right? Um, okay, so hear this out. Exhibit A. Communicate regularly and openly with both stakeholders and the team in order to guide the project in the right direction. So these, these are job ads that you've pulled offline from companies trying to recruit people. And, exactly. and this is what they're talking about with communication skills. Exactly. Right. And the company or the organization's uh, kind of names we don't have to reveal... Um, but these are all all major companies, and these are like actual job ads. So these are some of the requirements for the employees mm. or potential candidates. Um, okay, exhibit B. Communicate the fundamental concepts of service design to key stakeholders. Okay, are you ready for the third one? I'm ready, yep. Perfect. <laughs> uh, exhibit C. Excellent English and French language skills. So now, now that you have heard this, any any thoughts? Any initial reactions? Well, you know, I'm, I'm of course I'm trying to not read and w- imagine which companies are actually advertising for these <laughs> jobs. But if we go beyond the actual company itself, it's really interesting how today communication is is is, is described so vaguely, actually. Mm. Um, when ac- when we know it's such an important part of political life, you know, <laughs> we don't need to look at any of the common media at the moment. But communication is the, is is the centerfold of most of the human trust. Issues, yeah, and yeah. yet we describe it in such a, a very vague, you know, regular communication. Open. What does open communication mean? Does open mm. mean agreeing, or does open mean empathic? Does open mean um, tolerant, or does it mean uh, equal? Yeah. You know, there, yeah. there's so many constructs under these that could be misinterpreted. In, in, in other words, I think it's just a very good mirror that you've picked here to show the state of the collective awareness around how communication is both important, but still very largely misunderstood. Exactly. And I think that that's like really interesting, like, you know, dealing with these basic topics and unpacking them and really questioning in order to kind of move our un- collective understanding forward. Um, and actually, like, you know, when 
You briefly introduced or mentioned red, green and blue communication. Can can you open up that a bit before we kind of dig deeper into these examples? Hmm. Yeah, I think I think now it's also just to put context around it. When we talk about communication in Finland, the first conversation is usually a technical one. Mm. Most people confuse communication with communication channels, mm. meaning you know, is it SMS, phone, email, Slack, or whatever? Yeah. Um, or then they confuse it with um, information sharing, which is only a very small part of communication. Mm. So what Green Blue Red is 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 really just a framework to understand how to better influence people through your communication, but in a respectful and conscious way, without reverting to manipulative triggers, which you can read all about in in, in business books or mm. political propaganda, uh, or domination rhetoric, which is very much what is dominant in the public domain at the moment. Yeah. So, you know, we, we're looking at an alternative pathway to communication, and, and the green-blue-red is just a framework mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that helps us to color code communication at three different levels. And it's only when you look at them at three different levels, meaning the verbal, linguistic level, the nonverbal, which is usually the behavior, the timing and, and, and such like. And the third most important level is the intention level. So if you look at it as three horizontal levels, green, blue, red is color coding all three levels simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And to give you a concrete example of public rhetoric, um, uh, you could you could take now, I'm trying to think of a more recent example. Green in the communication in the public domain is people of Finland, um, you've heard about ego, and ego is usually associated with Americans. Mm. So if you say ego equals America in Finland, it's green, because a lot of people would nod and say, yeah, I kind of think that Americans have big egos, even Mm -hmm. though it's a complete cliche. Yeah, yeah. Um, Being blue is informing of something that you know that others don't necessarily know. So I could inform you that uh, I'm actually partly French, and you'd go, wow, you don't sound French, you don't have Mm. a French accent. So I'm informing you of something you wouldn't know, and you go, hmm, that's blue. Mm -hmm. Red would be talking about something that is common, potential common in terms of decisional action. So I could say, Mika, should we go for a beer afterwards? That would be an invitation to have a common action. That's the red part. So green is about other, blue is about self, and red is about the common. Now, when you look at that at that intention level, is my intention now to talk about you? that could be driven by a number of things. Curiosity, empathy, kindness, respect. These kind of intentions drive green. But if you want to drive blue, you would talk about, for example, responsibilities, knowledge, learning, ego. That's a, a blue focus on myself, what I can learn. Mm. And the red is about, for example, in business, it could be seduction or in politics, but the red could also be solving problems, collectively solving problems with technology and design and innovation, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So that's an example like a, of the three colors in, in the general sense, but specifically, of course, each color, there's techniques to be using those three colors, is, which is what we focus on in our, in our trainings. Oh, okay. yeah, that's super, super fascinating. Like, how do you deal with them? I guess like one of the questions people might have at this point is like, is there like a magic balance between those? Like, you know, show me the numbers, right? Mm. Is it like, you know, mm. one third, one third, one third? You know, if let's say, you know, let's imagine that you are like one of the applicants, you know, you found one of these job ads really fascinating. You sent your application, they call you into an interview. How do you compile your pitch? Absolutely. That's a, that's a very tangible way. Um, well, that, in some cases, I've even seen applicants hijack the interview to their advantage by using <laughs> the colors in the right order and the right proportion. Yeah. Essentially, if you want to do it, you need to start with green. 
So as an applicant, you might be encouraged to start with Blue. As an applicant, let's say that I'm applying to work for your company, Mika, okay? Mm -hmm. And you're the HR manager. Yeah. Um, naturally, you're going to ask me to talk Blue, I mean, about myself, my qualification. But there's nothing to stop me from trying to start in a green way to give a bit of trust, build mm -hmm. trust. Mm -hmm. For example, I might say, Mika, you're, you're probably terrified of hiring the wrong person, because the cost of a wrong hire is much higher for you than it is for me as an employee. Mm. I'm much more mm. protected than you are. Yeah. So it's in your interest to know exactly <laughs> yeah. what faults I might have and not just tell you the golden side of my profile, but you might want to hear about the dark side, the things that might backfire on you. Yeah, yeah. That, I didn't inform you of anything. If you were the mm -hmm. HR manager, of course, you would have to adapt it with your own words, but that's being green. That's, that's acknowledging what matters to the other person. Yeah. Yeah. So as a candidate, you know, think about being green in terms of the CV. Uh, I used to be in HR at one point hiring. And, and you know, the best mm. thing is, is keep it short because being green in this context is about acknowledging that the person might have to scan, read 100 emails. Yeah. And if it's three page long, they're less likely to want to read to the end. So being green in, in, a, in a position of asking for a job is also about acknowledging the other person's limitations. Yeah, yeah. The blue bit would be, then you would start to talk about yourself in the most tangible and relevant way. And then the red might be, of course, what comes out of that conversation, hopefully to be hired. Mm, but mm. definitely if, if I were to apply this thinking in terms of a job hire, doing background research on the company and adapting your message to the person looking to hire you is, of course, a good idea. Yeah, you know, the yeah. worst possible is to send a generic package with, here's who I am, yeah, that one yeah. size fits all the industry. I, <laughs> I, th I think I, I fell victim to that once. Like, you know, when, you, when, you, when you're desperately seeking for a job and then you forget, like, you know, you send the same template and you're wondering, like, why no one replies. I realized at some point when I sent this application that I was using the, the previous company's name in the application to the other company. <laughs> I, I never heard back from that company, which I Oh don't. dear. <laughs> a little story that happened to me when I was in, in an, a creative agency. I was, I was basically hiring people and uh, I didn't have much of a budget. And, and therefore to me, what was important is, can I get the resources I need? Yeah, yeah. And this one candidate, uh, she was actually from Belgium. She was called Sara. And uh, she, she had found out a way of getting funding so that she wouldn't cost us a single penny. Okay. So okay. as a candidate, she didn't come and say, here's my CV, do you want to hire me? She said, I'm free, <laughs> both <laughs> with my time, and it's not going to cost you a single penny. And I'm bringing the best design skills that you could want for in this particular job because you're trying to build your service design capacity. Yeah, yeah. And I was going, wow, she's done her research. She sold me the idea without being pushy. She just said, she's talked green to me. She said... I'm not going to cost you. And she still had to, you know, phone seven times to get through to my my colleague who was making the final call. And she mm, kept pushing, mm. but with that green angle that I'm good news for you. Yeah. Not not sort of being apologizing about being good news, but not being arrogant about it either. It was wonderful. We hired her wow. eventually. And then she was, she's, you know, she's been headhunted ever since. Okay. Well, greetings to Sarah, I guess. <laughs> Name changed or... <laughs> it is actually Sarah, but she'll know who, who she is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. So basically... Esther, let me, let me see if I got this right. So green is about the other person seeking rapport. Blue is about myself. And then red is about like, how do we, like, what can we do to get together? Correct. That's right. Seeking. Okay. Now, I find this really interesting because when we discussed this episode uh, the other day, I started recalling or thinking about my own graduate studies. How much do we emphasize communication skills? And, and I'm not going to cut in corners here or um, like I'm not going to 
sucker punching anyone, just stating a fact that we don't have that much emphasis really on actually unpacking these skills. We just say that, you know, during this course you will learn communication skills. Okay, but how? And this, I think, is a huge problem when we have job ads that actually say that, you know, communicate on a regular basis and openly. Um, what does openly even mean? I mean, this is like something you mentioned. So could you like kind of, should, should we actually kind of dig deeper into these small excerpts? Like, how would you analyze them more? Mm. Well, j- just as a, as a side note, before yeah. we go there, in terms of teaching, I think it's pretty universal that all teaching of communication is predominantly focused on red and blue communication. Yeah, um, I've been teaching a lot of green, uh, and because it's been so rare, both in the academic and in the and, and in the the professional training field, mm. green is is a rare skill. So what we teach is blue, how to inform of what my expertise is. I publish a paper. Yeah, yeah, and red uh, action report for consultancy. But the communication of the green nature is only learned in very very specific places like therapy hostage mm-hmm. negotiation, uh, conflict mediating, and coaching in some ways. So that's mm-hmm. just a little side note that, yes, I totally agree with you. It's very rare, mm-hmm. and it's the green bit that's particularly rare. But it, we could we could look at these, these different, you know, regularly and openly was the key words from the first job ad. Exactly, yeah. So regularly is about a very tangible, well, of course, you know, we communicate daily. So we, it, that doesn't teach us anything about what the, the job ad is really asking for. Openly tends to hint towards a value, mm. the value mm. of openness. Now, in, in many companies, uh, openness is celebrated as, as a core value for building community and culture. But openness has, is a double-edged sword mm. because openness can justify honesty, but it can also justify a lot of um, vulnerability that people are not willing to take. Yeah. So yeah. Th- there's an underlying whole thing that doesn't explain how. This is more like what, how to communicate openly. Mm. Um, we would say in the color coding means being able to um, be green enough, being able to be open enough to the other person and not being entirely already decided on the final outcome. A g- good example mm. of that mm. is listening versus obeying. Yeah. If you talk to somebody who, who who disagrees with you, they're most likely to interrupt because they're confusing listening with you and agreeing or obeying with you. Hmm. And that's taught in schools. A teacher will say to the very young, at least in the kindergartens in France, they would say, <laughs> um, you know, Estev, stop running. And then I wouldn't. And then they would say, you never listen to me. Actually, what they mean is you don't obey me. But that mm. semantic slip has grown very, very close in our minds as an adult. We start to think that when you listen to somebody who you disagree with, you're likely to seem to obey and agree with them. Yeah. And therefore, mm. the quality of listening is down. So being open means, for example, being able to listen without agreeing. When, when we teach ethnography and doing design research, first of all, you have to open listening without necessarily agreeing or disagreeing. So that's one, but I, that's how I would read it as a, as a sort of professional in the field. Yeah, but for most yeah. candidates, that means absolutely nothing. Yeah. <laughs> but the second one, communicate fundamental concepts. I would translate that as learn to, commu- you need to be a good blue communicator. You need to be able to make tangible with the latest neuroscientific tricks of storytelling and being concrete and teaching forwards in, 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 in smart ways through, for example, doodling. Yeah, that's yeah. how I would read it. I would say we want a blue communicator who can con- who can conceptualize things in a very tangible way effectively. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mm-hmm. talk anything about empathy. Doesn't talk anything about action and teamwork and decision making. So I would say they're recruiting a blue profile. Yeah, yeah. And the third one, excellent English and French, 
What does excellent mean? Does it mean, <laughs> does it mean that they're able to influence excellently? Or does it mean that they're able to do small talk excellently? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people Good confuse point. small talk with influence. You can small talk your way into a conference and you can work through, you know, networking and never influence anybody to anything. Mm-hmm. Or you can inform people excellently, like an academic speaker, informing of the latest publication. Or you can influence somebody to action and inspire them in an excellent way. What what excellence are we looking for here? Excellent in English and French, we're hinting towards multicultural communication. Mm-hmm. So multicultural mm-hmm. work culture. So I would read that they're looking for a good multicultural communicator. Yeah, yeah. But it's still quite vague. I mean, I could I could look at that and think a number of things. And I think like I think like that's that's also like super fascinating. Um kind of I, I feel that you know I'm actually like learning from you in a sense that like I'm kind of diversifying my own vocabulary on how do I talk about open communication for example. Because like when when you were talking about this first exhibit for example, I started thinking about I mean, you can also misinterpret open communication in a way like, you know, TMI or like too much information. Mm. You, you can talk about your weekend with your buddies and how you got smashed. And, you know, I mean, that's open communication. That's right. right. It is open. <laughs> yeah. How open do you want to be? Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's something that you can ask uh, in the job interview. You could even test it as, as, a, as a future employer. You could go in and say, how open would you like me to be? Yeah. And see what they react to, <laughs> how they react to that. You used the word, you said... Um, You talked about vocabulary. You talked mm-hmm. about the, the language. I think that's really important is that, you know, I can't remember who quoted this. It's, it's probably being quoted a million times, but uh, when the word doesn't exist for it, it actually doesn't exist in people's minds. Yeah, yeah. And therefore, you know, in the field of communication, there's a very poor semantic field in the collective. The collective semantic field around communication is relatively poor if you consider how important to, of an area it is in our lives that yeah. political decisions, marketing decisions, business decisions, home decisions, all of these go through the filter of interpersonal communication. Yet we have a very, very poor vocabulary to describe communication. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the words around empathy and love, I prefer to borrow the Greek eight definitions of love, which are, you know, agape and philautia and eros and philia, rather than the, the modern English, which is like, you know, love in a platonic or a romantic way, or (laughs) it's very poor, the language. So what we started to do, and it it came as a surprise to us, is we had to map the semantic field. And because of design thinking, which is our background, you know, Mm. we're a team of designers first and foremost, we we started to design that into a language. And then because it's too abstract to design a language, unless you're called Tolkien and you write something like (laughs) beautiful, like the Lord of the Rings, you you don't really get that language idea and metaphor across. So we turned it into a head-up display. And then we took each of those little words from that language, there's 56 of them, into icons mm-hmm. or hashtags if we use them in social media. Yeah. So we've basically had to start by defining a, an arbitrary semantic field around communication just to be able to teach about it in the business world. Because in the business wow. world, you have the business canvas. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. has done the same for business conversations. Yeah. But in communication talk, when you're trying to talk about the process of communication, the semantic field is is rather lacking. So we had to start, and this is more like the the technical back-end conversation we're having, we had to start by defining the semantic field before we could really do the trainings and build those into our training materials. Wow. And actually, that's like a a really nice segue. Um, Because at the moment, like, you know, um, we've been like on a quite high abstraction level. Mm -hmm. But how, like, because... With or like through uh, greenelephant.org, um, you've been doing offering training for different organizations, like especially within this topic. Can can you tell something about that? Like, how does it work? 
um, I started training in this particular format uh, about six years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and we found that the, the corporate world had a very big hunger for better communication. Yeah. Uh, the problem has always been that they don't know how to measure that cost. The cost of bad communication is still a big mystery uh, for, for HR managers today, unfortunately. But mm-hmm. when they start measuring, they realize. So when they measure it, they start to call upon people like us who are who are helping them to fix certain specific problems like teamwork or conflicts. Yeah. So we had to start by taking a more business approach, mm-hmm. which was solving problems, you know, that are measurable and costing money. Uh, and one of the problems is conflicts, misunderstandings and conflicts, cross-cultural, cross-gender, yeah. cross-age conflicts. Um, so practically what it means is that we, we, we do trainings, we do like face-to-face trainings. And at first we did workshops, hands-on, um, action learning workshops where they learn by role-playing real situations that we scripted mm. with some actors. Yeah. But then the, the HR was starting to measure the opportunity cost, yeah. which is the cost that is taken away from not billable work when they're working on the training. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the billable time is way higher than the cost that we have as external consultants to come and train them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they asked us, and this, we've been now doing this for three or four years, to reduce the amount of theoretical knowledge in the face-to-face time Mm -hmm. so that we can spread it in bite-sized chunks with videos and audio material that they can learn before and after. And therefore they use it when they're on the bench, when they're not billable, either on the train on the way home. So we were first asked to reduce the cost of the face-to-face, which to me as a pedagogue, if I'm talking teaching, it's extremely challenging to take away the interactive touch points like Mm face-to-face. So we had to really think and use design tools to, 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 to maximize those tiny face-to-face slots that we actually get, in yeah. both in coaching and in, in group work. So one thing we do is that, is that we combine digital, mm-hmm. meaning we have a learning platform with videos and all sorts of cool digital uh, toys, basically, for, for teaching, <laughs> yeah. um, and the face-to-face where we really try and get everybody engaged and optimize that. that. That's basically what we do on a daily basis, is we do corporate trainings like that. Yeah, and that I find like really, really interesting because, I mean, when you mark a departure, when you depart from this kind of FaceTime-heavy kind of teaching, how do you ensure that people are actually learning something, that, you know, they are kind of training their muscle memory, so to speak? Because, I, like, initially for me, that was quite frightening because I'm, it means that, you know, I'm letting away my part of control. I'm not in charge of any more, like, of their learning. Or, like, I don't, I, I can't really be standing behind them. So how did you actually kind of negotiate or how did you kind of find your way through this transition in a way? I think the, the this you know the, the issue of control is one. Um, for us, it's a lot to do with building trust. Mm. In the academic world, you're given trust de facto. The number of publications and seniority gives you trust when you walk into an auditorium. And that trust is a blue trust because it's based on your experience. But in a, in a corporate environment, you don't have that trust. There's yeah. so many other people doing things that are so, always sold better than yours that mm. you know you have to build another form of trust, which is the green trust, the trust based on understanding them and showing them that you understand their problems. So customization is one. Yeah. Because yeah. you have to adapt to what they're doing and not have this generic approach to, to solving a problem. The other thing is the teaching for, I mean, as a teacher, if you start looking at the pyramid of retention, the percentage of average retention of different formats of teaching, it's very obvious that any pedagogue today would agree that, you know, frontal teaching is possibly one of the worst. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the middle, there is interactive discussion, which is still what most people consider interactive. Unfortunately, it's not enough. Um, yeah. Really teaching forwards is the other thing we used. Because, you know, you, you, you would have on average 90% retention when you teach something you've learned forward. 
So what do we do? We use coaching leadership in our trainings to help the people train others in the organization through us. So it's, 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 it's kind of an undercover train the trainer model, if you like, <laughs> because they're not really trainers. They're kind of mm -hmm. internal coaches, but they might become a conflict mediator in their organization, or they might become a recruiter. They might become an onboarding teacher for the new employees. But yeah. what they're doing is essentially teaching forward what we've done. And we've broken down the theory for them to be able to teach it forward easily without looking too vulnerable. Hmm. But we've really emphasized in our design the how to teach it forward, because that's the best way to get retention. That is super interesting, actually. I've never thought about that, like, you know, thinking about even like simple university courses. If you implement that kind of strategies inside the course, so how would you teach, like, how would you as a student or a participant in a course, how would you teach this to your grandma, for example? <laughs> exactly. You know, you know yeah, when, once yeah. the lecture is end, like finished. That's a great point because I, we, we use the, what we call the grandmother test to test <laughs> the quality of blue. Yeah. So we say, if your blue communication, in other words, what you're informing about that the other one doesn't yet know, passes the grandmother test, it's tangible and good enough. So it, does your grandmother get it when you explain? Yeah. Because she, she has all the senses and hopefully all the cognitive skills still to cope with that new information. Therefore, if it's not clear enough, it's, you're being too abstract, too technical, too jargony. Yeah. So it's, yeah. We, we use that for pitching when people are doing in startups <laughs> pitching. When we t train and t test the pitching, uh -huh. we give the grandmother test. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, for example, green, blue, red, uh, you could pitch that in your own words, let's say to your partner at home. We mm. often do that because people transfer the learnings from the corporate to their private life. Yeah, so yeah. what happens is that we encourage them to take what they've learned in the day and teach it forward to their partner at home and, and play with it to improve their, their own home communication. Yeah. And like, just to be uh, clear about this, like, we are not bashing grandmothers here, like all the, all the loved <laughs> grandmothers. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Estev, you actually mentioned something before. You mentioned that there's like not enough interaction, even though we mentioned like in the lecture, kind of structure, that half, half part kind of interaction heavy. What do you mean by that? Like, what do you mean when you say that there is not enough interaction? I think, I think that might be, you know, I, I would probably want to be cautious with that because it really depends on the appetite of the learner. One thing mm. I may, miss a lot is teaching in, in, in university context because the appetite for learning is so huge. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when the appetite is huge, the interaction happens naturally in people's mind. They have an internal dialogue, they're engaging with the content in that way, mm. it's mm -hmm. fine. But in a corporate setting where people's average interaction is, you know, five seconds, in, I mean, continual <laughs> yeah. con concentration is on average five minutes. Yeah. Continual concentration, which means they're on their phones, on Twitter, on emails, thinking of the next meeting. There's a very low engagement. So in that mm. context, you need very high degree of interactivity to keep them present, a bit like with young children. Yeah. I know this sounds yeah. very judgmental, but <laughs> in the business world, people are very, they're, they're, their degree of attention is very volatile. Therefore, compared to a student in university who's able to focus for several hours to digest information, you have to make it interactive. You have to get them engaged in their work, yeah. grappling yeah. with their problems. And it, that's what I meant here. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I mean, I guess like that's like one of the key points people are struggling with. Like, how do you, how do you maintain high level of interaction without people or participants feeling that, you know, this is like exhausting in a wrong way. Do you have, do you have any kind of experiences or like any, anything to share on that? Um, I, I can't remember the title of the book that I read a few years ago, but it was essentially saying that listening is giving energy, mm. psychic, but also quite biochemical energy to people. 
Yeah. So think about this. If you're in a classroom and you've got 20 people that you're lecturing to, you're essentially getting 20 people's energy. It's mm -hmm. addictive. And yeah. that's why a lot of speakers, uh, you know, academic, but also artistic speakers um, who are often claimed to have, you know, a lot of appetite for speaking, they get this kind of addiction to speaking because they're getting this boost of energy from 20 people. And when, mm -hmm. when you listen, reversely, you usually give energy. Yeah, yeah. So I think one of the tips I would say, or one of the things, the, the takeaways here is that to be self-aware enough to know that when you're teaching, how much your teaching methods are influenced by your internal needs and how mm. much are they influenced by being empathic to the user or the audience's needs. Yeah. Most often when I coach teachers, they're much more focused on their own needs and they feel that they get a better energy from the audience when they're talking mm. and they're confident in their expertise yeah. rather than being letting the stage happen. So I would say that the shift from lecturing to hosting the learning hosting like you're doing in this conversation, in this podcast, mm -hmm, you're hosting mm -hmm. a conversation. Uh, you're allowing the conversation to unfold uh, uh, beyond you and your own space. But a teacher would probably need to do the same. It's like hosting the, the, the knowledge sharing is sometimes requiring to step out of the way and let people make their own mental pathways through their own conversations with each other and discussing and this kind of thing where they're thinking themselves and then you just reveal step by step what they need to, to, to uncover the content rather than just throwing it out. Like in the French system, yeah, they yeah. just stand there and they talk. Mm. Death by PowerPoint. You know, and, and, and then you have these students who are used to it. So they go to the corporate world and they copy. They do the same in the corporate world. Yeah. And I think that's what we actually quite often forget. Um, like I've been using the word role model, but I, I don't know, maybe that sounds a bit preposterous. But, you know, when, when if you're facilitating or lecturing, I mean, you are like, please help me with a better, better <laughs> word for that. But I mean, people do actually kind of, you know, you pick up on these things, like kind of small, some people would say memes, I guess, but kind of these ways of being in the world yes um but now i guess like because i mean this has been like super super insightful and super inspiring thinking about our listeners how would you kind of what would be like way to go forward because i guess like people are you know dying to know more or dig deeper into these topics how would you go about how would you help people well i, I was thinking of challenging the listeners a little bit with some what I would call powerful reflection questions, because any of any of us who've done reflection with journaling, for example, that's not just in your head, but writing it out or talking it out, yeah. uh, knows the importance of asking the right question. So I could I could perhaps open up three questions, one for each color, mm -hmm. that would help any of the listeners who want to think more about this or explore more, and perhaps even find reading references for those. Yeah. Um, would that be appropriate? Oh, definitely. Please go So ahead. the green. I think green, if, it, if we take green from the point of view of um, not just being empathic and kind, let's take a more Yang example like the FBI. Um, one of the people I follow very keenly is Chris Voss, who's, who's written a book called Never Split the Difference. Mm -hmm. And he talks about tactical empathy. He talks about how empathy reduces um, emotional turmoil in some cases. It can save lives in a hostage negotiation conversation over the phone. Yeah, yeah. So he, he writes a lot about these. So I think anybody who wants to, to focus on green could could actually have a look at Chris's Voss's book. That would be a really nice way to open that topic of green up. Yeah. Um, and the question I would put with that, the powerful question would be, um, when am I most struggling to be green? When am I most struggling to focus on the other? At what point mm. in my life? Is it when I'm tired? 
Is it when I'm upset? Is it when I'm with my partner? Is it when I'm with my boss? Is it when I'm with a difficult client or is where? And, and the reflection on that might open up some interesting areas where just like if you want to train your physical muscles, you go to the gym, this might indicate where you might need to train your empathy muscles. Hmm. Those places where you struggle to be green are places where you might want to practice your green muscles. Yeah, yeah. That would, that would be the first. The blue one is about a lot to do with responsibility and ego. And there I follow quite a lot, uh, actually another American who's, who's called Yoko Willink, who, who's a, an ex-Navy SEAL who was fighting in, in Iraq. And uh, he, he talks about this notion of extreme ownership. So it's not enough to take responsibility for your own actions, but you need to take responsibility for the impact of your actions on mm. others. And in yeah. his military context, it meant, you know, life or death on the battlefield, of course. And he, the way he speaks is very, you know, wow. off-putting for some Finns because he's very, very young and American and confident. But, mm-hmm. but his key message is a lot to do with ego. Are you able to let go of your ego is the question I would, I would put, pose to the listener is how to do that? Because that's a very difficult question. Mm. I would look at where am I not able to laugh at myself? What part of myself do I find difficult to laugh <laughs> at? And I mean wholeheartedly laugh at, not ironically as yeah. a self-defense mechanism, right? Yeah. We're talking yeah. about, let's say, the physical, I might be able to laugh at my little belly mm. or not. That's where the ego is, is, is problematic. So humor is the best way to measure ego. Where can you not laugh at yourself? And that's, that's again, an, an, an exercise of self-awareness that could lead to, if I can't laugh at myself at that area, maybe I need to build a little bit of self-acceptance so that I can behave less self-centeredly in this topic. Hmm. Fantastic. Um, thank you, Esteban. As part of the uh, Cloud Reachers podcast series, We always ask our guests um, to share some insights on like who or what they see as cloud reachers within their own field. So how do you like, you mentioned some names already, but how do you uh, kind of pin them? Pin yeah, I was, I was jumping ahead probably there. <laughs> um, well, there's quite a few actually, but I think the green, one of the greens was Chris Voss from the FBI. I think that's an example that's 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 interesting. Um, Joko Willink for, for the blue, but for the red, I think as an academic, I would still academically interested Otto Scharmer, who is one of the people who's been involved in the MIT's Presencing Institute. Presencing is a fantastic idea. Uh, it's one of the techniques that we teach in the, in the Green Elephant Journeys, which is about how to be green in an interview without being directive. Mm. And there's a Presencing Institute, which has pushed the boundary of that to a really interesting extent, extent where they're using social presencing, um, group impro theater techniques. And so he... I'm, I'm following very keenly because they, they do a lot of work with group dynamics and very useful stuff for teaching. So Otto Scharmer, Joko Willink, and Chris Voss would be the three that at the moment I would talk keenly about. And, and as a thought thinker, somebody who's mm, really mm. pushing the boundaries of the big powerful questions, of course, you know, Yuval Noah Harari, who's been writing about sapiens and, um, and then Homo Deus in his most recent book, 21st, 21st, 20 lesson, 21st century lessons or 21 lessons for the 21st century, something like that. He talks about, he, I think, is posing the questions around the topic of communication in a very, very crystal clear way. In mm. particular, he emphasizes the difference between with AI and the whole technological gold rush that we are confusing conscience, consciousness with intelligence. Yeah. Collective consciousness is not being developed. Collective intelligence is through machines. But we don't have any reason to believe that there will be more rise in collective consciousness by t- talking purely technological. 
So he's really posing those questions. So I'm looking at him as my sort of thought leader at the moment, mm, mm. opening up a lot yeah. of powerful questions for development and strategy and politics. And then for the more tactical questions of communication, those other three. Fantastic. Um, you just heard an episode of Cloud Reaches with Estev Pantier from greenelephant.org. Thanks for coming, Esther. Thank you very much, Mika. Thank you.